Samuel's prophecy now comes to fruition as Saul faces his final days before the Philistine army. This is the 61st and final sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A Royal Covenant reading coming this morning from 1 Samuel and chapter 31. 1 Samuel and chapter 31, the entirety of the text, the 13 verses, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went Saul against Saul, and the archers hit him. And he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, and they that were on the other side of Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And it came to pass on the morrow, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel once again presented unto us again this day. God now orchestrates the final battle that Samuel had prophesied of the final battle that Saul and Jonathan and his entire army would now launch against the Philistines. Now, while Saul and his army are fighting in the north, which was to be a losing battle against the Philistines, according to the prophecy of God through his prophet, David was fighting a victorious battle against the Amalekites in the south. And since there can be no victory without the Lord bringing about that victory, 
Saul was doomed to defeat as a result of God's Spirit being removed from him. And so while God is with David in the south, God is not with Saul in the north. And that is what makes the deciding factor for each of the armies. That is the deciding factor of everything that we have to contend with in this life. Because it doesn't matter what kind of battle that we are in, whether it's against sin, our own sin, or the rebellion of our children, or the rebellion of the nations. doesn't matter what battle that we are engaged in. If the Lord is not with us, if the Lord is not fighting on our side, then we can never be victorious. And that is the deciding factor of every battle, no matter what kind of a battle it is. God had removed himself entirely from Saul, which resulted in his guaranteed defeat. And sometimes we think that God has removed himself from us when the fact of the matter is that we have removed ourselves from God. And then we wonder, why can't we mortify a sin? Why is our family out of order? Why are we out of order? Why is the nation out of order? Why is this out of order and that out of order? Because we have removed ourselves from God. And because of the human fickleness and frailty and stubbornness of man, man, Christian man, thinks that God can be trifled with. They forget about the severity of the Almighty the covenant God who cannot lie, and they trifle with God. Saul was trifling with God, as so many Christians trifle with God today. But God had removed himself from Saul, guaranteeing his defeat and utter humiliation. And this was just. It was a just recompense. Saul was viciously opposed to God, so why would not God now be viciously opposed to Saul? Saul sought violence against God's anointed, God's priests, and so God returns the favor. And he gives Saul his just punishment, because that's what God does. Man cannot mock God. Man cannot trifle with God. We cannot trifle with God. And this is why there are so many churches which are so prosperous in the world today, because men love trifling with God, so the ministers trifle with men. And they speak of God as kindly old gentleman up there not wanting to be very uh, vindictive or, or serious. And this was a just punishment for Saul. This was divine retribution against a man who had violated the commandments of God to the point of murdering the priest at Nob in addition to seeking the assassination of the Lord's anointed young David, the son of Jesse. And so we have a fundamental universal principle and it is this. Victory can only be achieved when God is in it. The opposite, therefore, is also true. If God is not fighting the battle with you, for you, in behalf of you, unto his glory and his honor, defeat is guaranteed. Sometimes we wonder why we cannot mortify our sins. Maybe it's because God's not in it, because our motivation is not so much to mortify sin, but to put sin a little bit further away from us so so our conscience is not feeling so guilty. Well, then God cannot be in that mortification. So if God is not fighting the battle for you, 
with you and in you in behalf of his glory and his honor, then defeat is guaranteed. And since this is a universal principle, it holds true for all kinds of battles, military battles, economic battles, political battles, cultural battles, you name it. It's a universal principle. It's a given. How many times do we pray to mortify sin or to, or to seek a right end of something when we don't begin by begging God to be there with us, be there for us, fight for me because I am too weak to fight for myself. Whenever and wherever there is a conflict, if the Lord is not in it, defeat is guaranteed. But there's another universal principle attached to this. God is only in the battle bringing about victory when that conflict is just, when it is a righteous conflict. And once again, the opposite is true as well. Whenever the motivation behind the battle is unjust, you can guarantee defeat. It's just the way it works. It's a universal principle, a divine principle. So now as the battle rages between Israel and the Philistines, it is becoming more and more painfully and abundantly clear that Israel was losing. And now the Philistines fought against Israel, verse 1. And the men of Israel fled. They fled because God was not in it. Because now God was against Israel. So the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and they fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. The army is being decimated because of Saul and because of their wickedness as well. And while at one time Israel had been bold and courageous as lions, even as the church of Jesus Christ historically was militant and triumphant, when they would say something and the culture would stand up and take notice, when ministers would preach the truth of God's word and when civil magistrates would stand in awe of God's word and God's ministers because they knew if they didn't do what was right that they would be excommunicated. There was a day when the church was militant and triumphant and those days are long gone. And there was a day for Israel as well when they were as strong as lions, courageous, not fearing any man, not fearing the state, not fearing what people might say about them. There was a day of, of victory for them. But now, like little girls, like little children, little babies, they now flee from the face of their enemies as sheep before her shearers. What a terrible time we live in. At one time, Israel was on the pursuit. They were on the offensive, hotly pursuing the Philistines. But now, in a dramatic turn of events, the Philistines are hotly pursuing Israel. And this is what happens when God departs from a people. They become fearful. For Israel, they not only became fearful, they became fearful for several reasons. Firstly, Israel was fearful of the Philistines because they were not fearful of God. They had lost the reverence of God. They were trifling with God. There was no fear and reverence before their eyes. They forgot what it was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their might. They followed blindly after Saul, who killed the priests of Nob. 
and sought to kill David and his 600 men. Secondly, fear came upon them as a result of not trusting God. And David understood this while Saul did not. Notice what David says in Psalm 115, 10 and 11. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He repeats it twice so that we would get it into our thick skulls that we must fear God and trust God. They work in tandem, together. Thirdly, Israel was unable to trust God because only those that do good and are good by the new birth can trust the Lord. These were not good people. They were not Christian people. They were not saved people. They were not regenerate people. Because God only serves those and protects those that do good and are good. But they were in neither of those things. Therefore, they could not trust God. They could not fear God. Note how trusting God and following after righteousness are yoked together in Psalm 4, 5 and Psalm 37, 3. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. In other words, do good. And put your trust in Yahweh. Psalm 37, 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Notice they yoke together. Trust the Lord and show something as far as a response to it. Trust God. Do good, trust God. So shalt thou dwell. Notice, if you do this, if you trust the Lord, if you do the things which are right, so shalt thou dwell in the land and thou shalt be fed. You verily shall be fed. You will be fed. Fourthly, Israel was hoping, not in God, they were hoping in their own warfare strength to deliver a victory for Israel, but not in God. They were hoping that Saul, their military general, their captain, their political appointee, they were hoping that Saul, their king, would save them. They put their trust, they put their trust in man. They were hoping that Saul, their king, would save them. And so they put their trust in man. Notice what the psalmist says, Psalm 118, verse 8 and 9. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Number five. Israel was relying on their own understanding of the situation. But the psalmist would say, no, you trust in the Lord with all your heart. Even the Proverbs, his son Solomon said the same thing, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. You do not have the corner on strategy or wisdom or tactics. But Israel was trusting in their own wisdom. Six, Israel failed to consult God as to their position in the battle. And so as a result of their failure to seek counsel, they became fearful when things began to deteriorate. They were actually relying on Saul's word that he had consulted God. He was supposedly getting counsel from God when in fact he was getting counsel from the witch at Endor. He wasn't counseling with God. I love when people tell me, well, I prayed about it. When the scripture says absolutely the opposite of what they're going to do, even though they said they prayed about it. 
Maybe Saul was telling Israel, well, you know, I prayed about it, we'll be victorious over the Philistines. And herein is a very practical lesson. While we want to trust our leaders, you know, we, 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 we want to trust our leaders. We want to trust our pastors, our civil rulers. The bottom line is this, we have to find out for ourselves what God says on certain matters. We have to search the scriptures. We have to get off ourselves and get into the Bible. We have to stop being lazy and look in what the Bible says about this thing, that thing, or the other thing. You want to know something? It's in the Bible. Not Dr. Phil, not Oprah, the Bible. The Bible. And only the Bible. It's not YouTube, it's not Dr. Google, it's the Bible. And until we recognize that it's God's Word and not man's Word or man's interpretation of God's Word or man's interpretation of the world around them, we're going to still be in the quagmire of nonsense. And we're not going to get anywhere because our footing is in the quicksand. We can never use the excuse that someone told us this thing or that thing, this was true, that was true, the other thing was true. We have to search it out for ourselves. Israel was was being accountable to Saul when they should have been accountable to God. And we are accountable for what we believe is true. Number seven. Israel seemed to have regressed to their original fearful posture before David killed Goliath. Remember what happened? Before David killed Goliath, they were up there like partridges, fearful of their own lives, up in the mountains, when Goliath was bellyaching about, give me a man who will fight me. They've totally regressed. Instead of being what they should have been, after all of this time, they went back to what they were before Saul was able to claim victory through David. Now, under the new headship of David... Israel was valiant until Saul became narcissistically envious, seeking to kill God's anointed. Once Israel submitted themselves to Saul's headship and rejection of David's headship, they were running scared. And this is what happens when a people seek the leadership and protection of a secular entity under the old Adamic nature and reject the leadership and protection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whenever we seek leadership and or protection of the state, which we know in these dark days seeks to be God and a tyrant, we regress into a fearful state making ourselves ripe for slavery. That's where we are today. We're trusting in Adam. We're trusting in the leadership of our, of our rulers. And so by shifting allegiances from David to Saul, Israel had lost their edge against the enemy's destructive forces. Number eight. The fear that Israel was experiencing was a result, a direct result of their wickedness. Solomon identifies this in Proverbs 28 verse 1. Notice what it says. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. I see people today still wearing face masks. And yet, there's no CDC declaration of a pandemic. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. At this point, Israel was anything but bold. They lost God's blessings, which they had in Courageous David, and we're now returned to the cowardice of Saul. 
God had begun his wrathful recompense against Saul and his army, resulting in the death of many of Saul's army, including Saul and his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Geboah. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. Any hope of a Benjamin dynasty under the generations of Saul were now being dashed to pieces. Remember, that's what he wanted. He wanted Saul and his sons to make that dynasty under his name. But God will have no dynasty but the dynastic kingdom of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. So let's stop talking about our generation, our family name, because it doesn't mean anything unless we're building the generation of Jesus Christ. That's what's important because that's eternal. That lasts forever. And there will be a day when all of our family names will be part of that dynasty. But the dynasty is Christ's. For Saul, all hope of regaining any honor to the tribe of Benjamin was now lost. Even though Saul had one surviving son that obviously was not in the battle, maybe he was too young or too fearful, his dynasty was not to progress. So after his death, Saul was left only with his son Ishbosheth, and whoever remained faithful to the tyrant king. And this would later prove to be a difficult posture for a uh, difficult issue. This would later prove to be a difficult issue later on in the life of David and the history of Israel, because Ishbosheth would now be looked at as Saul's benefactor. God then gives some graphic details about Saul's situation. Saul was hit by the arrows of the Philistine archers in verse 3. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. And this seems to be symbolic, as well as very practical and historical, since God sometimes uses arrows as a reference to his law, and at other times as a reference to his people who come with the law. And we, in a very real sense, are the arrows in the hand of a mighty hunter. To be sure, God was cursing Saul. Right now, Saul was under the curse of God's law, and God was taking out his vengeance upon Saul. To be slain by the arrows of the Philistines may insinuate that since Saul sought to follow his own pagan law code, of autonomy as a result of his wickedness, he must then now be judged by the code law of the pagan Philistines because that's what God is using to destroy Saul. And often God does that. God uses wicked nations to destroy his apostate people. Now, whatever the symbolic meaning is, we can be sure that this was God's judgment against rebellious Saul. That is very clear. And yet the arrows failed to kill him immediately. Even though his wound might have been unto death eventually, if not tended to, he was not killed immediately. So, in Saul-like fashion, in his Saul-like rebellious fashion, in his Saul-like wicked fashion, and in his Saul-like narcissistic fashion, he seeks to take his own life. And this is what cowards do. He refuses to take responsibility as cowards do, refusing to take their beatings as they go for the wrongs that they have committed. They refuse responsibility for their actions. Consider Saul's fear. Notice what he's afraid of, verse 4. 
And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. As before and as in every instance, narcissistic Saul is only concerned about himself. We don't see any repentance. This is the hour of his death. You think that someone at the hour of their death is starting to say, God, I know I did all these things. I'm ready to meet my maker. Help me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I repent. I confess. I confess. We see nothing. We see no shame, no remorse, no sorrowing, no repentance for his sins. Nothing. No prayer of confession before God, which is very curious since he was about to meet his God face to face. And I could assure you it wasn't going to be a happy reunion. He was on the precipice of eternal damnation, fire and hell, brimstone. No humility, not even here. He was looking for an escape, thrust me through. I don't want to be dealt with by the Philistines. I don't want to be abused. I don't want to be humiliated. It's all about me. He's not even lamenting over the defeat of his own army and the future of Israel, who had now been beaten by the Philistines. Saul, as always, is worried about Saul. Obviously, he didn't want to be mocked. He didn't want to be abused. He didn't want to be tortured in any way whatsoever, either physically or psychologically. He didn't want to be shamed. I don't want to be ashamed. And yet, he was abusing the entire nation all along. He didn't want to be abused, but that's what he was doing to everyone else. And this is an eye for eye, hand for hand, foot for foot, tooth for tooth moment. Lex Talionis, God is bringing it on his head. And Saul wants nothing to do with it. Instead of turning to Yahweh for counsel, or for a last ditch effort for an answer to his dilemma, he turns to his armor bearer to kill him. Notice what he's doing, as he's always done. He's looking to another man for deliverance. Get me out of my predicament. Get me out of the things that God has brought about on me. He's not looking to God. From what I hear, of course, it may just be a rumor, when Steve Jobs was about to breathe his last, the multi-gazillionaire, He was heard to say, Oh God, oh God, oh God. We don't hear that from Saul. How wicked was such a man as Saul. He looks to another man to get him out of his dilemma. But the request is refused. Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not. For he too, mind you, was so afraid. Because fear infected everybody. Because that's what happens. When you reject God, everyone becomes fearful. Saul responds to the armor bearer's rejection by killing himself. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. Now, what David is constantly refusing to do throughout this narrative, throughout this historical narrative, by killing the Lord's anointed, Saul takes it upon himself. He has no problem killing the Lord's anointed, even if it was himself. And this was a grievous sin. Notice what 
Reverend V. Philip Long says, he says this in his commentary, Saul's decisive action is sometimes lauded as worthy of a tragic hero, but the biblical perspective is rather different in respect of suicide. Lauded rather are those who in times of great danger or duress turn to Yahweh for strength as David does in 1 Samuel 23, 16 and 30, verse 6, and who, like Jonathan, submits himself fully to the divine will. You see, that's what Saul should have done. Seeing Saul dead, the armor-bearer then kills himself as well. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. Now, hearing that Saul was terrified of being abused by the Philistines, it must have infected the mind of the armor-bearer as well, causing him to follow Saul in suicide because of that fearful disposition that these cowards had. And herein is a universal example of men who follow after the Adamic nature and seek to follow the Adamic man, whose end is death, often by their own hands, since they refuse to seek the face of God, which guarantees their own death. In other words, those that hate God love death. It's as simple as that. And those who refuse God are actually killing themselves. And I want to make this point very clear. If you refuse God, you are killing yourself. You love death. It's just the way it is. And again, may I stress once again, every human being that breathes at this moment in time or at any time in the past or future will face that moment of death. There's no way out. Maybe Saul thought that by killing himself he would bypass he would bypass the judgment seat and go right to the pearly gates. Those who refuse God are actually killing themselves as they fall upon the law of God represented by the sword here. And these actions are are not heroic, they're tragic. Long adds this, he says, Saul is not a tragic hero. Though his life is certainly tragic, his calling was to deal the Philistines a decisive blow, but in the end, he dies by his own hand in fear of what the Philistines might do to him. So instead of seeking the the destruction of David, which took him from his divine commission, he should have been focusing on destroying the Philistines. Notice, he was distracted. That's what distraction does. It takes us from what we are called to do and sidelines us into doing what we are never called to do. And whenever we are distracted by worldly pursuits, we are like Saul, who failed to follow his commission for the satisfaction of his own lust. And at the end of the day, the Philistines left Saul's army destroyed, fearfully running for their lives, with Saul, his sons, and his armor bearer dead, all in one day, at the end of one dreadful battle. A decisive swooping of the divine, destroying everyone, That was in rebellion. And so, verse 6, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, that same day together. That same day together. See, when God says, he's had enough, he's had enough. No incrementalism here. He's had enough. Consider the extended ramifications of Saul's death and Israel's defeat, verse 7 and following. When the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side of Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. Fear took hold on them as well. Everybody's afraid. It's contagious. It's contagious. 
lack of trust, lack of faith, fear is contagious. They fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in their cities. So not only did Israel lose the battle, they lost their homes. They lost their land. That is what's going to happen to us if we are fearful and not trusting God. That is what's going to happen to us if we're distracted. We're not only going to lose the battle, we're going to lose everything else. And if you haven't noticed, they're taking everything else now. Little by little, little by little, here a little, there a little, until we all fall backwards because of fear, because of not trusting God, because of not being serious with our religion. And so as a result of this sinful apostasy and failure to look to God, Israel's dominion calling was overturned. Instead of Israel taking dominion over the enemies of God, the enemies of God took dominion over Israel. And the reason for this was simply their failure to trust and obey. They looked to man. They looked to Adam. They looked to the Adamic nature. But we can never trust man. We can never trust the souls of this world. The great Puritan, the Reverend George Swinock, speaking of Adam and all of those who hold still to the Adamic nature without the resurrected Christ within them, says this, He, speaking of Adam, who was the world's Lord, is now its slave and vassal. He, who was the master of wisdom, is now sent to school to the very beasts, to learn of them understanding. He, who was unspeakably blessed in his love to delight in and communion with the fountain of his being is now miserably cursed in his deviation from the ocean of his happiness. How in the world do we ever rationalize going to man for wisdom, strength and righteousness and not going to God? It's an unconscionable act. While it was Saul's commission to take dominion over the enemy by his rebellion, witchcraft and murderous actions, the enemy of Israel took dominion over Israel. And that's what's happening to us. When we fail in our commission to take dominion, we will be taken over and we will be under the dominion of the wicked and the unrighteous. So fearful were the Israelites watching the destruction of Saul's army as they watched from the other side of the river Jordan that they abandoned their own cities and fled to the hills, allowing the Philistines to easily take control over what was once the cities of Israel. Fear made them unable to defend even their own possessions. So after the day of battle, as was the custom of the conquering nation, the Philistines would walk through the carnage. They would walk through, just picture this, bodies strewn across the field. Vultures swooping down, tearing at the dead flesh of the rotting corpses, blood spewing out from the battle wounds of Israelites. Just picture it. And the Philistines, in their lust, and their greed, as their custom was, walking through the carnage, seeing what they can take, whether it be weapons or trinkets, walking through the carnage, assessing the dead, but also looking for the body of the king and his posterity. 
Because they had to confirm the kill. Well, the archers had struck Saul. They had not been able to confirm the kill. So in order to confirm the kill, they walked through the carcasses of the dead so that they could confirm the kill and to take Saul's body as a trophy in celebration of their victory and as an offering to their God. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And so as Saul feared, once his body was found, the Philistines wasted no time in abusing him for all the world to witness because that's what the world will do. They will abuse Christ's anointed. They will molest the church of Jesus Christ whenever they can. Note the extent of their vengeance. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about. Everybody had to hear about this. To publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. Notice what they did. Well, the first thing they did was cut off his head. That was an act of domination. An act of headship. We are now the head. Saul is no longer the head. We own Israel. Israel does not own us. And to take the head of the king was to depose the king as king and to take his place over his empire. They owned Israel. And this was a common practice. As David took the head of Goliath, showing that he was now the head over the Philistines, the Philistines seek to reverse that offense by taking the head of Saul. And that's what's happening today. At one time in history, the church had dominion. Today, the head of the church has been taken. Christ is secondary, even in the church. Now it's football scores, prosperity movements. Jesus loves you. You can go to heaven and have the world too. Have a nice time. Second, they stripped Saul of his armor. Now to strip the king of his armor was a symbolic gesture showing that he no longer had any power to fight nor any power over his people to protect the people. He was totally stripped. He was stripped naked of his military prowess and his royal dominion abilities. This was very symbolic. This was a celebration of the Philistines. Take away the armor of God. Take away the helmet of salvation by preaching falsehood. Take away the breastplate of righteousness by saying you can have your sin, you can have it, you can love it, and you can still have Christ. Take away the feet which are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And you don't need to share the gospel anymore because you're going to heaven and so are your kinfolk. Take away the armor of God and you are left naked. So they take Saul's armor. Thirdly, they then place his armor and presumably his head as well in the temple of their goddess Ashtaroth. You see, Saul is used as a sacrifice to the Philistine deity implying that they believed that it was their goddess that gave them the victory. And by taking the head of Saul and putting it in their temple, that is what the state wants to do with the church. To take the church and put it under the dominion of the state, a.k.a. 501c3 Incorporation. 
As a token of thanksgiving, they offer Saul's head and armor to Ashtaroth. Now, we've already determined Saul is a type of Adam, the first king of the nations. And as a result of Adam's disobedience, he forfeits his headship in the same way as Saul forfeits his headship. And if you read very carefully Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says, when you forfeit obedience to God, if you were the head, then you become the tail. Israel is now the tail. Adam, in the same way that Saul is stripped of his power, Adam is stripped of his power, Adam is no longer able to protect and fight effectively for the kingdom's honor in the same way that Saul is stripped of his power to fight and protect of his people. And that protection and power will eventually be transferred to David in the same way that it was transferred from Adam to Christ. And we see right there the gospel. Number four. Saul's armor is paraded before the Philistine people showing that Saul no longer is of any threat and that he has been subdued by the Philistine army. Do you know what happens when a church puts out that rainbow flag, it tells the people that the state has won. It parades that fact. And once that happens, mind you, once that happens, the church is no longer a threat. And that's exactly what they want. Finally, the Philistines nail Saul's body along with the body of his sons to the wall of Bethshan. Bethshan was controlled by the Philistines and presumably it was the place where the twin temples of Ashtaroth and Dagon were located. So again, another sacrifice to their gods. And as a result, whenever the Philistines appeared before their idols, and they appeared before their idols very, very frequently, they would be reminded of the Philistine victory. So whenever a church goes the way of the secularists. The wicked are reminded of their victory. However, this was not the final humiliation of Saul and his sons. That humiliation would come, sadly, by his own people. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. They burnt them. They cremated them there. So having Saul and his sons hang headless on the wall of the Philistine deities was too much for some of the more valiant men of Israel to bear. Credit to them. And so they mount up a campaign to retrieve Saul's body and the bodies of his sons from the temple in order to bring them to Jabesh for a proper burial. But the final humiliation, however, is in the manner of Saul's burial. Saul was not actually buried in the typical fashion as the Israeli fathers. Certainly as king, he was deserving of of a proper burial, but that's really not what he received. Instead, his body was burned, which was after the custom of the pagans. Pagans cremate. Yet the fact that his remains were buried after the burning seems to indicate that even though his body was initially burned, his bones were finally buried under a tree at Jabesh. So why not simply bury him? Why burn him in the manner of the heathen and then bury his bones in the manner of the people of God? Well, I think we might be able to reconcile the two ceremonies by understanding that Saul was indeed an unregenerate man. And while at the same time an Israelite, even the king. 
Perhaps his cremation was to show his nature or, or the fact that the Israelites had so embraced pagan ideologies by this time that they were following what they thought was right. But they do bury him despite his reprobation to show his affiliation with God's people. Now, today, this is not to say that in our present day we're absolutely forbidden to cremate our Christian loved ones. Especially, and I find this very suspicious, especially since economically it has become so oppressive to bury our dead in the Christian manner that people opt to cremate. Because that's what the state wants. So they oppress you financially, saying, I would love to bury my loved one in a Christian burial, but... but I am unable. And this might even be a strategy of the wicked to economically prohibit Christians from burying their loved ones in, in the Christian manner. Israel finally buries Saul's bones as an act of respect, maybe even to satisfy a guilty conscience that they burned his body initially. But what's always but what's so curious is that after Saul's death and the death of his sons, it says that Israel fasted seven days. Not the customary thirty. Nor do we read that the people mourned over the death of Saul as they did over the death of Moses. This too may be telling. Maybe they finally realized that Saul was not the king that they needed. Maybe the Democrats will finally realize that this is not the king that they needed. Now while all of this is transpiring, David is concluding his battle campaign against the Amalekites and hasn't a clue as to what has befallen Saul and Jonathan. But once he finds out the truth of Saul's end, poor David must deal with three emotional realities. The first is that he must deal with the personal sorrow and hurt over Saul and Jonathan's death and the way that they were slaughtered. The second is that David must also deal with the damaging fallout of the public disclosure of such a defeat and how it might demoralize the entire nation of Israel while at the same time further empowering the Philistine enemy. And finally, upon the death of Saul, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, David must then come to terms with his anointing as king of Israel, while at the same time considering what place Saul's surviving son, Ishbosheth, has in the lineage of King Saul. We will consider... That next, when we move into the second book of the prophet Samuel. But for now, this concludes our exposition of the first book of Samuel. May God be pleased to bless the entire book to our hearts and our minds this day. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.